Welcome to the second season of the Duck Industry Podcast. Like in 2020, the podcast was realized in collaboration with the What's Up with Docs podcast and the programmers of Color Collective. Join us for discussions on topics such as the limited representation of brown LGBTQ plus stories in the cinematic space, the lack of inclusivity in the mainstream press, and the possibilities of Caribbean avant-garde cinema. The Doc Industry Podcasts are funded by Creative Europe, the City of Leipzig, MDM, and BKM. Thank you to our partners and collaborators for their contribution. Enjoy! Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Joni. Um, and Renelle and I also want to extend a thank you to the Doc Leipzig team for inviting us back to do to be part of these series of podcasts that they're doing for the festival. So this is very exciting. And also I'm very excited to have this conversation with you because um, my background, how I got started in documentary was through um, archival research. Mm -hmm. And I still do that on the side because I'm a nerd and I love to like look up things and I love history. Um, and I actually, when I, I was doing this epic train trip across the country uh -huh. and um back from the East Coast to the West Coast. And I actually spent some time in Washington, D.C. and went to the Library of Congress. And for those who are in the U.S. who are who work as archival researchers, the Library of Congress has a lot of um, items, um, footage and documents that are of public domain. So it was like really great to kind of to actually be in that space that, you know, um, houses the, the people's history. And it also kind of speaks to the importance of like the need for some of these um, institutions, because um, if it weren't for some of these institutions, these items would not be preserved. And um, we're going to be getting into some of that and how it relates to what's happening in Afghanistan. I wanted to first ask you, particularly for our audience members who might not know about you, um, first of all, like, how did you get into documentary filmmaking? Hmm. Well, it's an interesting story in a way because I started out as a documentary filmmaker and then I took a detour into the art world for 20 years and then I came back to documentary filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, that's basically how it happened. Yeah. Okay, so what made you get out and then what made you get back in? <laughs> well, yeah, I made, I made an experimental documentary in my early 20s as actually my BA thesis. Um, This was the 90s. It was comparative literature. Anything could be a text, including your own texts, could for comparative literature could be films, and then you could analyze them yourself. I mean, it was a wild time, you know, the 90s and complet. <laughs> and um, yeah, I I got interested in experimental documentary through the work of Walid Raad and Jace Saloon mm -hmm. and uh, Mona Hatoum. And then Mona Hatoum really took me on this other path where I was like, I saw her uh, solo show at the New Museum in New York. And it was the first time I'd seen anything in a museum that really spoke to me and my mm. own experience. And it really blew my mind in a way. And I thought, oh, art can, art can be about this. Mm. Art can be about politics, art can be about exile, um, and it can end up in museums. <laughs> wow, okay. Um, 
Yeah. And, and so then I started thinking, okay, well, well maybe art, art school is the way not film school. And okay. then I ended up in art school. Um, mm-hmm. That's that, that's the short version of the, the story. <laughs> <laughs> and so you did, you did your, so what kind of art were you creating? Like, what was your focus? Were you doing like um, video installations or what were your, what were you working on? Yeah, I was always working with lens-based practices. I was working mm-hmm. with moving image primarily, but I was making, you know, multiple channel installations, uh, videos with spatialized surround sound, interactive mm-hmm. video art in the early 2000s. But I, you know, stopped doing mm-hmm. that once my career became international because those things break really easily. And when you're not personally there to fix them, it doesn't really right. remain a practical thing to keep making. Mm-hmm. And um, I made net art also in the 2000s. Um, I, I did a lot of that. <laughs> and, um, and then I, I started working a lot with archives. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Both archives as material and also the construction of archives as artworks. Right. So, yeah. And photography and sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's that's great kind of like going back into the history of that and it's weird to think of like the 90s as history um but <laughs> I guess it is I'm 50 so I'm like ooh, 90s is history like that was just like five years ago uh, right you know yeah I know. but um but it seems like a lot more documentary filmmakers are, are incorporating some of like these various experimental um techniques mm-hmm. um now, whereas like in the 90s, it was, was kind of like, you know, radical and, and, um, <laughs> but we actually see some of these techniques that maybe we've seen in like art installations and museums being used mm-hmm. by filmmakers, like in, just in their film. This needs to be a, yeah. a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do think I became more interested in the idea of making a feature length documentary when I started to see feature length documentaries looking more like artworks. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And adopting more of these kind of hybrid and experimental practices that had already been circulating in the art world for quite a long time. So, right. Yeah. The other thing that happened, of course, was that I just I started working on a project that clearly wanted to be a feature. And, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes content dictates its own form. And that's really what happened to me with what we left unfinished it just so obviously wanted to be a feature film. (laughs) I worked on it in all these other ways. You know, I worked Mm -hmm. with the material as live cinema events. I, you know, did an exhibition or a series of exhibitions. I made, you know, all kinds of little mini objects and different, um, I did all these different panel discussions, but like it just wanted to be a feature Mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. So that's what I ended up making. So what what we left unfinished has had many lives and many um, in, incarnations. Yes, it really okay. has. That's great. <laughs> so is, is this the final incarnation, or do you feel like there's more you could more you could do with it, other things you could do with it? I mean, I did at one point think I could also make a book out of it. Or with <gasps> oh, it. that's a great idea! Like stills from the from mm-hmm. the films and with quotes mm-hmm. from the filmmakers and the mm-hmm. actors and yes. Okay. You should do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be oh, okay. But if we could get, we can get into that later. So since we're getting into what we left unfinished, um, tell our audience for those who don't know um, and need to know what is what we left unfinished. 
What We Left Unfinished is a feature-length documentary about five unfinished films from the communist period in Afghanistan, and that's 1978 to 1991. And it basically brings together newly rediscovered and restored footage from these lost films with interviews with the people who worked on them and the kind of behind the scenes stories of the really extraordinary lengths that they went to to keep making films in this period. And this was a period when filmmaking was really seen as a political tool. Mm. And so it became a deeply politicized act to continue making films under the communist regime. And films were seen as weapons, filmmakers were seen you know, as either participating in or resisting the regime, and they were subject to, to political oppression, to censorship, to attacks from opponents of the regime. Uh, there are wild, wild stories in the film about what resulted from this. <laughs> um, and also it was a real DIY-driven kind of yes. filmmaking that was going on in Afghanistan at this time. So there's also wild stories that result from that. Yes, I, those stories were were really great. And um, for I think for anyone who loves um, films that are, are about films and filmmaking, like this is this is a film that people should see, you know, um, from from that aspect because like stories are a little cray cray. Like you did mm-hmm. what? Like really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's really it's really fascinating. So um, you cover in the project five five films. So can you mm-hmm. tell us about? Just give us a brief synopsis of like r- wrong way. Mm-hmm. Wrong way is an unfinished film by the director Juan Sher Hayabi. And it was made during the kind of tail end of the communist period, which is the period of reconciliation, the attempted reconciliation by the last communist president, Najibullah, with the Mujahideen. And it's really a film made in this this spirit of reconciliation. It's a film about two brothers who are on opposing sides Mm -hmm. um, of this conflict. And one is with the Mujahideen, one is with the regime. And, you know, through their conflict, you also see how this um, this split has divided a village, a border village. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really reflective of this moment in which kind of everyone wanted the war to be over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were like, mm-hmm. we're so sick of this war. Can't Retired. it be over already? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it sort of stages a reconciliation in advance of the reconciliation that everyone was hoping would happen. It stages mm-hmm. a small scale reconciliation in this village, um, which is very dramatically staged with like people like throwing their guns away. And, like, yes. Families <laughs> re-embracing Lots each of other hugging. after yes. conflict. And <laughs> it's really beautiful and weird. And yeah, it's uh, it's it's nice. the, the wrong way in the film is referring to how, you know, by that point in the war, everyone thought both sides had lost their way. Um, right. No, no one was right at that point. Yeah. Yeah, and it was just time to make peace. Mm-hmm. You know, time yeah. to make peace. All right. Um, and then agent. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, agent is a film from even later um, in this period when really there was like barely any regime functioning at that point, 
And um, it was actually produced independently. It's the only one of these five films that was produced independently mm. by its filmmaker rather than being funded by the regime because there was no more state funding for film at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Soviet aid had all been withdrawn uh, and the Soviet aid was really what was fueling um, state funding for film. Right. So this is a film that was produced independently by Latif Ahmadi, its director. And it really looks at, in a kind of prescient way, Mm-hmm. The way that the um, heroin trade had begun to permeate uh, so many different aspects of Afghanistan mm. during the war. So, mm-hmm. you know, how so many different aspects of Afghan society had become involved in um, this heroin trade during the war. And it's like both sides of both sides of the war were involved in it. We're using mm-hmm. it to fund various things or were part of the trafficking um, it looks as so, like how you know even nomads were like carrying <laughs> carrying mm-hmm. the carrying the opium from one part of the country to the other. The truckers like it looks at like actually all of these different circuits that that mm. the heroin is traveling throughout the throughout the country. So just a kind of a quick question, just for historical context, mm-hmm. um, what was driving the the heroin trade? Uh, obviously, their demand. Okay, but but uh, also like who who was getting the money and what was the money fueling? Yeah, I mean, I think primarily it was fueling the insurgency, so fueling the mujahideen mm-hmm. uh, fight. It's very common, you know, in these kinds of civil wars for uh, insurgent groups to fund their activities through uh, a combination of drug trafficking antiquities trafficking which also very much mm. happened in Afghanistan mm. um uh jewel jewel trafficking if, if there are any kind of mineral or jewel deposits that also gets trafficked like there's mm-hmm. just a lot of trafficking during these wars right um and that was very much the case in Afghanistan as well and mm. so the heroin trade which had not really you know been happening on that scale I think prior to 78 became a much much bigger facet increase okay yeah Mm -hmm. but you know the the soviet army also got involved in this actually to a surprising extent because the soviet union was one of the major uh, Mm -hmm. markets for afghan heroin Uh, so there's a scene in agent which didn't make it into what we left unfinished but there's a scene Mm -hmm. in agent where you see um heroin being packed into coffins that are being flown mm. back to the Soviet Union by the Soviet wow. Union. Right? And that wow. is one of the ways actually that they were reportedly, that mm-hmm. heroin was reportedly trafficked back to the Soviet Union. They would actually burn bodies and then pack the coffins full of heroin. Whoa. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So downfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Downfall is a film by the late Fakir Nabi. One of his only films as a director, he's mostly known as an actor uh, and a great, great Afghan actor. Mm-hmm. And he, um, it would have been his first film as a director and, and it was was an interesting one, like to kind of sort through the footage and figure mm-hmm. out what it, what had been intended to, to kind of be the, be the order of scenes or how they would have been assembled partly because they didn't finish principal photography on that film mm-hmm, and also mm-hmm. partly they did a lot of reshoots mm-hmm. uh, and it just wasn't as clear I think from the way that it was shot how 
the director had originally envisioned it being assembled as it was with some other films made by more experienced directors. Mm-hmm. So with any, with these films, did you have, happen mm-hmm. to have, you had the footage, but did you happen to have access to the, the some of the scripts? No, we didn't no, have okay. access to any of the scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, the directors, in most cases, hadn't retained any of that material when they fled in the late 80s or 90s. Right. Mm-hmm. They had to leave all of that behind. And a lot of them didn't remember the original. It's a long, it's a long time films. ago. Yeah. It's a long time ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But, mm-hmm. you know, with a film like Wrong Way, it had very, very clear scene markers um, mm-hmm. on all the slates. Uh, right. So it was actually pretty clear how it had been meant to be constructed. And that wasn't necessarily the case with every film. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So in any case, Downfall Downfall is a film that was made in uh, the mid-communist period, which was a period of really intense paranoia about surveillance. Uh, so for context, by that point in the 80s, the state security agency, HUD, uh, which had been trained by the KGB and the Stasi, mm-hmm. they had been mentored by the KGB and the Stasi, employed about 20,000 people, um, some of whom were agents, but some of whom were secret informants. And, mm-hmm. and I think the secret informants vastly outnumbered the actual agents. So there was this real and in many cases warranted paranoia mm-hmm. about who might be watching you and reporting on you to HUD. And Sukut for me is a downfall. Sukut is a film mm-hmm. for, that for me is really born from this moment of, mm. of surveillance anxiety. It's a film about, you know, a, uh, a HUD agent is the protagonist. Like the protagonist mm-hmm. is an agent who works for HUD, who gets kind of caught up from what I could understand of the plot, which is a little murky. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who gets caught up in a kind of criminal conspiracy that he's drawn into by some kind of old friend, which he's supposed to be investigating for HUD, but then he somehow gets implicated in through some scheme that they mm-hmm. you know, set up and ensnare him in via like the daughter of the family who he falls in love with. I don't know. Um, yeah, but, yeah, that's what you think it is. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think it was. It was very confusing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But the thing that was really notable about it to me is that it's this kind of cops and robbers movie, essentially. Mm, but it mm-hmm. it's just full of footage of people watching each other, filming each other, photographing mm. each other, and following each other. And wow. that was like 20% of the footage that we had. Mm-hmm. was just surveillance right and <laughs> you know? yeah and because that, that yeah. was a real concern for for folks mm-hmm. um back in the day so just for yeah. our some of our younger people um mm-hmm. the kgb or as a, the major spy entity that was part of the former soviet union yeah and stasi was um the major spy unit that was part of east germany yeah and actually in um Berlin, there's a museum called the Spa Museum, mm-hmm. which is like really, really cool. And they go into all this stuff and they have like little artifacts of like all the little spy devices, mm-hmm. not only from just like the, it's mainly like Soviet Union in the US, so you know, Soviet Union of the KGB mm-hmm. versus the CIA, but they go into stuff with other countries too. It's, it's really cool and a little scary. And yeah. um, I feel like we think we know. We, we feel like um, they know like what we're doing now because we have all these smartphones and that, but there was a lot going back in back 
in at the basically at the height of the Cold War. There's mm-hmm. a lot happening. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, so Black Diamond is another film about the um, heroin trade. Um, so mm-hmm. how does this differ from Agent? Well, this was another one where the plot was really unclear. But, okay. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And the director really didn't remember anything about the plot. Right. Um, but uh, it's it's made um, not that long before Agent. So again, towards the end of this period, but it is state funded. And so it takes a kind of less neutral position, I would say, um, where Agent is a little more observatory um, mm-hmm. in the way that it kind of uses the, the heroin trade as part of its plot. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the Black Diamond is really really condemns everyone who who participates <laughs> in trafficking and it has like several kinds of trafficking um mm-hmm. in the plot and everyone involved in the drug trafficking who's also they're also like doing things like making and selling fake passports so that people can leave the country and mm-hmm. so on is clearly a terrible person they do things also in the film like uh do uh, stage gas attacks on buses mm. and in schools, uh, which are similar to things that actually did happen in Kabul mm-hmm. in that era, especially the school gas attack that's staged in that film mm-hmm. is based on a real incident um, and, and follows it like quite closely, I think in the particulars. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, and then um, last but not least, um, the April Revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the April Revolution uh, is an extraordinary document um, (laughs) in that it is a reenactment of the 1978 Afghan communist coup d'etat staged three months after the actual coup d'etat and featuring the entire army and air force um, Mm -hmm. using, you know, real tanks, real missiles, real guns, um, and also featuring Hafizullah Amin, uh, the deputy leader of the Communist Party, you know, with his family reenacting the moment, you know, when he gave the order mm. to start the coup d'etat from house arrest in his apartment. So they they restage that in his actual apartment with his mm. with his family. Mm. This is because the whole thing was scripted by Hafizullah Amin. So <laughs> <laughs> right. It was it was his project from the outset. Mm-hmm. Um, there's supposedly 36 more minutes of footage with Hafizullah Amin that has been totally lost. Mm. Um, and I wasn't able to find any of that footage. I was only able to find, you know, the three and a half minutes that was used in a Soviet documentary co-produced mm. by Uzbek film, mm-hmm. um, directed by the Uzbek filmmaker Malik Kayumov, um, which features the the Hafizullah Amin footage, but with that kind of Russian voiceover that's very snarky that, yes. that I did use in my film because I thought it was so remarkable. <laughs> it kind of shows the the intense like shift um, in the political view of Hafizullah Amin that is put forward by the Soviets after they assassinate him, which they did like quite shortly after that, mm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. just before right. the documentary is released and you know, not very long after the film was, um, was shot. Um, right. And that's the reason it's never finished, of course, is because it, 
it was a project of Amin's and he was mm-hmm. um, assassin. He was deposed, assassinated and very quickly villainized in mm-hmm. like 20 different ways. So, so how did the archive in Russia um, get the, get that footage of the film if it wasn't finished? Well, actually the story that I have heard, and this is of course hearsay is that, uh, Malik Kayumov came to Afghanistan to make his documentary about the Afghan revolution, Afghanistan, the revolution continues. Mm-hmm. And he basically took all of the, the footage featuring Hafizullah Amin mm-hmm. um, from this unfinished documentary. He just took it from Afghan film uh, and took it back to Uzbekistan with the intent of using it in his documentary. Mm. And so the only part of it that I was able to find is the part that's in the finished documentary because the finished documentary is in the Krasnogorsk archive in, in Moscow, but mm-hmm. the footage he didn't end up using would have been stored at Uzbek film and Uzbek film dissolved in the nineties. Right? Mm. When the Soviet union dissolved, Uzbek right. film was completely disbanded. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it is somewhere in Tashkent, like in someone's house. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In someone's house in a basement mm-hmm. in a box somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Because mm-hmm. stuff resurfaces from Uzbek film occasionally. So, right. I mean, I know people kept things, so I'm sure it's there mm-hmm. somewhere, but um, I wasn't, I wasn't able to find it, you know, in time for making what we left unfinished, but I continue to put out into the world my yes. desire to see it <laughs> someday. Um, mm-hmm. I would love to see the rest of this footage someday. Uh, what I did was buy the footage from Krasnogorsk, the three and a half okay. minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I took to them an official letter from Afghan film requesting the return of, of this footage. Yes, okay. And they mm-hmm. said no. So then I bought it <laughs> <laughs> and returned it. But I was it was so expensive, I was only able to buy it in HD, you know, because they were charging so much money for it. So how much did mm-hmm. they, since we're, we're getting in deep into archival <laughs> stuff, like how much was it? Like how much was it per minute or per second? Like what, what are their rates? I believe the three and a half minutes was $3,500 for oh. HD. For oh my HD. goodness. So That's 4K expensive. was like, 4K was I think three or four times as much. Wow. And I just, I was in a pretty early stage in the film then and mm-hmm. I definitely did not have that much money for licensing. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um, even over there, like I, I thought ABC News Source was expensive, but I guess even over there, it's pricey. <laughs> yeah, but Russian archives are not cheap. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to ask, like, how did you find out about these films? Mm-hmm. Particularly considering they were they're unfinished. Mm-hmm. Did you like, um, yeah, how did you discover these? Like, were they kind of in the zeitgeist? Did you hear about, had you heard about these filmmakers from like your parents when you were growing up? Um, How did you know about these? Yeah, so I first started hearing about these particular films. And in particular, the first one I heard about was the April Revolution Mm -hmm. uh, during a proof of concept digitization workshop that I helped run at Afghan oh. film in 20, 2011, I want to say, 2011, 2012, during oh, a series okay. of workshops that were put together for Documenta 13, the big periodic exhibition in Germany, mm-hmm. um, which had in the 13th edition, uh, a kind of auxiliary 
project in Kabul, um, mm. which I was, I was part of. And so was that project yeah. helping like just basically help creating opportunities for people to digitize these archives for the preservation purposes? Yeah, essentially what, what Afghan film wanted was for us to help them put together a proof of concept Mm -hmm. uh, that would allow them to then raise money to uh, digitize the entire archive, which is what they wanted to do. And we, Mm -hmm. you know, we only had 10,000 euros for this workshop. So we said, we can, we can give you a proof. We can, we can help you do a proof of concept version where we, you know, digitize like 30 films um, Mm -hmm. and from different periods and genres and we do them with the existing machine that they had, which was a spirit telecine from the 90s, which um, digitizes mm. to like HGV tape. Okay. So, you know, your highest resolution is 480p. Right. Uh, which obviously not ideal these days. No, yeah. Not, not considered not archival were, yes. now. Right. Mm-hmm. And also mm-hmm. it was broken. The telecine was broken. Mm-hmm. So we, um, I was working with, colleagues from Padma, the Public Access Digital Meeting Archive, Media Archive Collective um, out of Mumbai. They mm. recruited a telecine technician from Bollywood, uh, okay. Jay Shaban, okay. who mm-hmm. came mm-hmm. up to Kabul along with Shainanan, Ashok Kumaran, Faiza Khan um, from Padma. They all came up to Kabul and we spent three weeks in the archive. Wow. Um, Vijay fixed everything that he saw that was broken literally wow. mm-hmm. <laughs> right you know, processor steam backs telecine and then he trained everyone who, who wanted mm. to learn to use mm-hmm. the telecine uh and they became like really really adept at it uh, right right people, which then came in really good stead once they were able to raise funds mm-hmm. to, to buy a newer telecine um, mm-hmm. They'd already gotten very familiar with the whole process. Right. Um, and a lot of the theory around color and light and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and dealing with fragile film and fragile splice points. and Yes, yes. Yeah, all of these I, material questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, that's something um, probably a person who's not familiar with like working in archives that really doesn't uh, understand is it's not just the um the issue of like collecting the archives but it's also the preservation but also like handling archives that are delicate like in this original Mm -hmm. state like i I remember the the first film i I worked on um bridging divide tom bradley politics of race i went to the los angeles city archives Mm -hmm. and they had all this these um, all this footage on reels, you know, 16 millimeter reels that had not been looked at in like 40 years. Yeah. Um, and had not even been open. So mm-hmm. we actually had to find like someone who knew, who knew how to, um, who had to bring a machine to look at those reels, but also mm-hmm. who knew how to splice, splice it. Because yeah. when we were, we were, we were watching it, um, it would break because it was so yeah. delicate. So like, yeah. you know, handling and putting it back together. And uh, we were able to use um, some of that, some of that footage, but, and, and digitize what we needed for the film, but the rest of that, and there were like hundreds of reels there was not even look, cause it wasn't relevant to what we needed, but it's just still sitting there as original state decaying. Mm-hmm. 
you know, yeah. and there was some fascinating stuff. Like there was all this footage of the, the Watts riots that had been um, shot by the LAPD. Cause this wow. is like the LAPD archives. And it's not the regular, it's not the normal stuff that you see in films about, mm-hmm. you know, about the, the Watts rebellion. Um, yeah. But also there were like funny things like um, cruise chef at um, Disneyland, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so- <laughs> Which was, was like, which was like, it was of interest to me because my grandfather, um, who, uh, who I love dearly, he used to make me memorize the names of the Soviet premieres mm-hmm. and, um, and then recite them back to him and write them down. But it was, I remember at the time when, you know, they were, they were picking all these really old ones and they were dying all the time, mm-hmm. you know, like they were like, you know, so I was like, I had like all these Russian names in my brain, but yeah, I mean, but it's like all this, there's stuff there. We just don't know what it is that's just sitting there decaying because um, these archives, a lot of them don't have the resources to, and or the time or the money or the capacity to help um, preserve them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, Yeah it's it's yeah it's kind of it's, it's sad you know and a lot of people don't don't realize um like that mm-hmm. that's a, a, an aspect of it um so i wanted to ask you too because uh, like the one thing i loved about this project or this film was that it showed a completely different view of afghanistan that mm-hmm. we that we particularly here in the u.s or the west are not used to and I, even though there were the films were dealing with some of these heavy subjects, they also were scenes of just like Afghans living their like everyday lives, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so would you describe this time as like a golden age of Afghan cinema? Well, the directors describe it that way, certainly. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah. think one of them says that in the film. Mm-hmm. And I think from their perspective, it was in that they were given more funding. Yeah, they had money. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was state support for cinema in a way that, you know, hadn't existed before and hasn't really existed since. And there was also, you know, for all of the arts, there was a a kind of elevation of artists to a social position that -hmm. they hadn't Mm -hmm. had before and haven't had since. Right. This this was true also for the performers. It was true for people in other artistic disciplines. There were artist unions formed, Mm, as in mm -hmm. kind of all the all the Soviet-backed countries and Soviet republics. This was a pattern. They did this everywhere. They formed these artist unions, and then the heads of the unions were given diplomatic passports. Mm, Yeah, mm -hmm. there was there was uh, they were given prominent artists or actors or directors were given apartments they were given mm. better ration cards you know there was like right. a, <laughs> there was a reward system for there were rewards for participating in the system but there were also a lot of dangers to being prominent participants right. in the system especially for actors who you know were the faces mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. this cultural push right Right. Um, and, and they remember it differently than the directors mm. do, of course. Mm. <laughs> they remember it as a much more fraught and dangerous time right. than the directors do because the directors were behind the camera. They were safer. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I remember one of the, I can't remember her name, but one of the, um, the women um, actors, she talked about um, how actresses were 
were in some circles like viewed as like prostituted women, mm-hmm. which um, kind of made me think of like old Hollywood, like back in the day before the talkies, like that was mm-hmm. like the perception that lived <laughs> that was um, that was prominent back mm-hmm. then. Um, and like, you know, it's like, why, like, why? But um, so just speaking from like her perspective, like um, that people were people confronting her on the street about, you know, her being in films, like what was, what was, what aspect of it was dangerous for her? Well, it was more that, you know, the, the shoots that they did in, especially in more um, rural areas when they ventured outside of the city mm-hmm. itself would actually be attacked by the Mujahideen. And, oh, you know, that the, part. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. the, the actors and the, and the directors remember this differently in that mm-hmm. the directors will describe it as we were shooting and somehow we ended up in the middle of a firefight totally accidentally and the actors, you know, will remember <laughs> like, it as they came after us totally deliberately and right. they were going to kidnap us. And they said, you know, shoot the men and take the girls, like that kind of story. Right. So okay. it's two very different versions of, of these stories that you'll get from, from actors and directors. The directors will mm-hmm. be like, you could totally negotiate with the Mujahideen. It was fine. And the actors will be and like, I like, couldn't no. even say I was an actor. It was better to say I was a soldier. Right. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, in the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, an- another thing that I really like uh, appreciated this about this film is that it's such um, it's a it's a celebration of these artists uh, as well as their fortitude and their commitment to their mm-hmm. art. Like these folks yeah. are dedicated, like yeah. hardcore, like any artist, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, also, it's a celebration of their work and um it seems like um there is i've noticed like when i've traveled to um overseas the festivals particularly to europe there mm-hmm. seems to be a almost uh, a resurgence um in ex and filmmakers like today exploring some of these films of the past particularly of the mm-hmm. communist of the communist era in mm-hmm. these um a lot of these soviet bloc countries because mm-hmm. i think when the the soviet when the berlin wall came down and the soviet union like ended in theory <laughs> you know in theory mm-hmm. um there was maybe a, a rush to to um forget all these all these artistic works, but um, they do speak to a specific um, cultural memory and just like any film, like capturing, capturing a, a moment in time. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, what I appreciate. Well, this is, this is what film does anyway. Like it captures, it captures, um, it captures moments um, so we can reflect and remember, but also interrogate if necessary. You know, mm-hmm. I want to ask, um, in particular, because you mentioned before uh, about some of the artists who inspired you, who were not only talking, who not only creating art, but like speaking, are uh, were uh, exploring their experience um, as as exiles. And mm-hmm. since this, the, a lot of these filmmakers and these actors and actresses who were um, who were on these films are in exile. Like, what is what? do you see as the um, unique aspect, the, the unique aspects of cultural memory that they're trying to um, explore with their work? 
Do you mean, you know, in these specific films that I included in what we left unfinished? Yeah, yeah, these specific yeah. films, yeah. Mm-hmm. And these specific films. It's a little bit of a tricky question because I think at the time that they were being made, I don't know that all of these directors were were making films for history, right? Yeah, I mean, they're respecting yeah. their films to get out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of them, of all of these filmmakers, uh, probably, probably Haidavi and Latif Ahmadi were really thinking about posterity, thinking about you mm-hmm. know, films that, that enter into the historical record. Um, and maybe not so much the others. You were right. more thinking about films as entertainment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, as popular entertainment. Um, I, I don't know what Dawood Farani, who directed The April <laughs> Revolution, was thinking, because, of course, he was dead by the time that I made What We Left Unfinished, and I couldn't interview him. I only was able to interview Latif Ahmadi, who was the cinematographer mm-hmm, on that film, mm-hmm. as well as the director of Agent. Um Certainly, that was a film that was trying to address the historical yeah, exactly. record yes. mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. and create a kind of document of, of mm-hmm. that moment where no actual document existed, right? right. Surprise mm-hmm. coup, there's no document. Right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Right. And the mm-hmm. reason I, you know, the reason the April Revolution is the first of these unfinished films that I became aware of is because it's been recycled so much. The footage from mm-hmm. that film has been recycled into other films. Mm-hmm. You know, often enough that it it almost has come to function like a historical document of the coup. Like, so right? everybody references it as 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 a point. Yeah, it is mm-hmm. the only image of that moment that exists. Mm-hmm. So right. even though it's fictional, it does embody that history on screen, right? Right. Mm-hmm. In so, so many other films documentaries and fiction films that that mm-hmm. kind of refer to that historical moment which I find fascinating right and I, I think um, the unique thing yeah. about that film is just because it happened like so soon after you know mm-hmm. a- after what you said like three months because so- yeah. sometimes you know um you know these you know these films about um moment you know historical moments are created you know a year or 10 years or 15 years afterwards mm-hmm. and this is like in the immediate yeah, yeah. so yeah, I mean, I think Amin, Hafizullah Amin was very interested in mm-hmm. the historical record and how he would be remembered in it, right? And mm-hmm. that was the project of that film for him. The and he and he wanted thing, to control that narrative in a way. Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think the interesting and tricky thing about making a film about a coup d'etat so soon after a coup d'etat is that the government <laughs> wasn't actually stable yet. And right. so there's a story I didn't put in the film that really speaks to this, which is that when they lowered the flag of the communists on the presidential palace and put back up the flag of the monarchy temporarily mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. shoot, you know, the sequence uh, for the film of the taking over of the palace, right? People thought the government had actually fallen. Oh, wow. Because it yeah. was... It was too soon. It was too soon. <laughs> right, right. It was too soon. People just, people didn't think a film was being made. They just thought the government had fallen. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there were real consequences to that because some members of the Hulk faction of the Communist Party, Amin's faction, 
um, who were known for their luxuriant mustaches. Don't ask me why that was like a thing. Okay. Um, actually, actually shaved their mustaches. Oh my goodness. Yeah. When mm. they saw the flag go down and then they, um, Amin heard about this and he threw them all in prison and they were never heard from again. Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, okay. Mm. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. There, there are a lot of ways in which, you know, the relationship between truth and fiction in these films is pretty slippery. Mm-hmm. Right. We talked about the gas attack incident that's kind of mm-hmm. reproduced in the black mm-hmm. diamond. There are a lot of episodes in downfall that according to uh, the director were scripted by an actual HUD agent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are other things like that in other films. And yeah, there's, you know, the stories that Haider tells about the shoot he was on where right. you know, he was the only actor and everyone else, you know, playing soldiers were actual right, soldiers. Actual soldiers, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that kind of, that kind of it, thing was happening all the time in these films. There, right. there was a very lively interplay between fiction yeah. and documentary, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like there's no, there is very little division between art and life, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of my, my favorite quotes from the film, um, it's the director with the hat, who like, <laughs> I guess, who everyone, yeah. yes, everyone, as you say, everybody loves. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. But he talks about film being um, a visual history and it's like a person who sits in the corner and recounts all the tragedies and histories, either real or imagined. Mm. And like that quote to me was like so profound because um, it really actually, it kind of feels to me like a, a documentarian sensibility, mm-hmm. you know, um, like a verite documentary sensibility. Um, uh-huh. But also when he talks about tragedies and histories, like real or imagined, he's already, he's like really getting into how memory and how, how we, how we remember, like mm-hmm. already um, impacts like what we, what we are going to see or perceive on screen. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was just so profound, like that, that very conscious, that level of consciousness of like me as the observer, like mm-hmm. shifting what is being observed. So um, I just want I know I'm probably getting a little esoteric there. And my background is in anthropology. So I think about, I think about these things. So but I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that, particularly from the perspective of, you know, this being an archival based film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's there's another there's another thing he says later in the film where he says um, whatever the truth was, whether it was sweet or bitter, that's what I put in my films. And then he, he gives a little pause and he says, and then of course you add some dramatic flair, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, there's a lot happening in that space between whatever yes. the truth was I put it in my films and then right. and then you add some dramatic flair right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? like spice it up no but it's, it's story is storytelling you know yeah it's yeah. absolutely storytelling and mm-hmm. I mean the reason that I was interested in these unfinished films which are fictions you know as material for a documentary is, of course, because of that slippery relationship between document and fiction and Afghan film, and also because 
you know, there's there's very little filmic material made during this period that escaped censorship in any mm. way because mm-hmm. censorship was so strong and it happened at so many stages of the filmmaking. These films also were censored at several stages in their making, mm-hmm. but they escaped the kind of final censors cut, which happens when a film is edited and then has to pass through the censor before getting distributed when they would literally go at it with scissors and wow. then discard whatever they took out. Right? So were these um, censors like folks from the, the Soviet Union or folks from Afghanistan who were like um, agents of the Soviet <laughs> Union? So, like who, who were these people who were um, with, who were the people with the scissors? <laughs> I mean, from what I understand, and I think this is discussed briefly in the film, for most of this period, there was one guy who was the censor, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, who was Afghan, and he, mm-hmm. he was that final censor with the scissors. Um, but uh, the Soviets came in at the point when dailies would be watched. So the oh, Soviet advisors they were would watch the dailies. They were yeah. on the set. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But also all the scripts had to go through a censorship board in order to get government funding. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And directors were also on these censorship boards, right? So mm-hmm. several of the directors I interviewed actually were on the censorship board at one time or another, mm-hmm. like the, the board that reviewed scripts, which wasn't officially called a censorship board, but was totally a censorship board. Right. right. Yeah. So, so they all told me, we also sent scripts back because they just weren't good enough, which I mean, right. may or may not be true. <laughs> right, it's true. <laughs> like, I want to get mine. Made. You just need yes. another draft. You need another draft. Like. Yes. <laughs> and another one and another one. Yeah. <laughs> um, this. Um, so I just kind of want to understand, like, your experience as a Afghan woman mm-hmm. um, looking at this footage. Like, what, what was... What did that mean for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it is important to be precise about my position when I'm working with material from Afghanistan and working in Afghanistan. And, you know, that position has always been a diasporic position in that I grew Mm -hmm. up outside Afghanistan and that always inflects how I look at Afghan film and look at any material from Afghanistan and work with any material from Afghanistan so that there's always a certain degree of estrangement, you know, in Mm. my viewpoint that's just baked in that is inevitable and inescapable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I just have to kind of go with it. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So you you use the word estrangement Mm -hmm. Um, because usually uh, when we use that term um the person using that term has kind of like made made a in some ways made a choice to like kind of disassociate in some kind of way <laughs> you know or, or disconnect but mm-hmm. in your case it wasn't it hasn't been a choice yeah I mean I think probably I might not have used the term estrangement three months ago right but yeah. uh, okay okay yeah, oh because of everything yeah. So, oh, from maybe I would have phrased it differently. I don't know. It's hard. No, to tell it's, right now. but a stranger from like based on everything that's happened with the the U.S. pulling out and the Taliban taking back. Things over. are things are a little weird right now. Yeah. Um, oh, a lot, a lot of weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, you know, the diasporic 
position, which is the one I've worked from all my life as an artist and as a filmmaker, is a very tricky position in that you mm-hmm. never fully belong, you know, yeah. in mm-hmm. either space. Um, right. you're, not, you're not fully from the place you're from and you're not fully from the place you're, you know, visiting, right? Even if it's technically your home. Right. End, right. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that is something that inflects how I work with all the material that I've worked with from Afghanistan. In the case of what we left right. unfinished, by the time I made the film, I had already been working with um, the archive for six years. Yeah. So, t- so tell mm-hmm. us about Af- Afghan archive. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Afghan film and the archive and yeah. what you're trying to do with that. Oh, well, I mean, what I, what I can, yeah. Um, <laughs> is, a, is that a big question? <laughs> it's a really hard question to answer right now because the fate of the archive is very uncertain at the moment. Right. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know how much I actually can say about it. Um, okay. Yeah. In this mm-hmm. particular moment, that might be something we save for a, a, a part two conversation. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I can say that, you know, following the proof of concept digitization that we did in 2011 at the invitation of the Afghan Film Archive, that was successful in helping them raise funding to recatalog the entire archive and begin digitizing the archive. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they did get quite a long way into that. They they managed to do do a fair bit. Of, mm-hmm. of that digitization. Um, also, the other thing that I did was draw attention to what was in the archive, which just yeah. had never, some People parts of it had never know really what was been in there. Some of what was in mm-hmm. there, like some of the more well-known among Afghans feature films, which do kind of play on national television mm-hmm. regularly, you know, had been bootlegged and circulating on YouTube or whatever for for some time. But other things that were in the archive, like the newsreel footage or the unedited Mm. footage, nobody knew that those were there. So when we put those online through Padma, that started to draw more attention from foreign filmmakers Mm -hmm. who wanted to license footage or foreign news organizations who wanted to license footage. And also the attention of a few documentary filmmakers who became interested in the story of the archive. So mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. one of the things actually that led to, for example, Pietro Brett Kelly's film, A Flickering Truth. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then Ariel Nasser's film, The Forbidden Real. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it really, it did generate this additional interest in an excitement about the archive and its story, uh, which mm-hmm. is a remarkable story of these people who, who sacrificed a lot to, to preserve these films mm-hmm. through a lot of a lot of conflict and a lot of hardship yeah I mean the guy who yeah. says if they ask me for the key mm-hmm. I'll just say I lost it <laughs> yeah and, and and that's in reference to um I, I um correct me if I'm wrong but basically he was trying to protect these archives and he was still in the country and he had mm-hmm. access to them but you know he was going to like deny 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 in Mm -hmm. on the efforts um, and the goals of preservation you know if it came down to it yeah that was during the previous Taliban regime and Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's, it was one of the factors that led to the preservation of most of the archive from the Taliban during that mm -hmm. time. Right. Um, which is, a, at this point, a very well-known story. And there are many, many of the people who were involved in defying the Taliban at that time are still alive. And so they're now at increased risk because of that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so just a powerful it's a powerful stand to take um, because this is like the, the preservation of, of history. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's also, you know, for many of these people, it was the preservation of their own life's work. Yes. Because these are people yes. who, mm -hmm. who worked at Afghan film for decades mm -hmm. and had their hands, you know, on all of these films. They were lab technicians. They were negative cutters. They processed these films. They spliced mm -hmm. these films they, you know, they were the people who actually physically made the films. And right. so, yeah, it, it is also, and this is also something I always think about with the materiality of archives. You know, it's, the archives are communities of people. And mm, mm, the okay. Afghan Film Archive was very much a community of people who had been involved not only in preserving the archive as an archive, but also in many cases in making the films that, that constituted that archive and not just in making them as cinema, but, but mm -hmm. actually in physically, materially making them as films. Right, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to one thing you said earlier, and it, it actually kind of references my conversation I had with um, Jihan El-Tari um, um, and about the manifesto and liberate the image. And mm -hmm. you were you mentioned how you wrote to the Soviet archive initially to ask yeah. for the return, mm -hmm. <laughs> basically the return of these of these like of this footage to uh, to the people, mm -hmm. um, and that is something that um, Jihan and her her colleagues call for and liberate the image because like mm -hmm. like you mentioned, archives are so expensive, and particularly how there is particular archives from other countries that are are in that are in from countries that are in other countries are there's this um there's this air of um colonization about that mm -hmm. and yeah. um there is a bit of call for the return of these images and um i, I just want to kind of if you could like speak more on that i know you mentioned that one experience mm -hmm. but um in your work with the afghan film have you like reached out to entities in other countries besides the soviet union who might be footage to ask for like the return of of items to be part mm -hmm. of the afghan archives so the people can have access to mm -hmm. it yeah, so in, in that particular case, it was actually the, the head of the archive who, who wrote the official letter requesting okay. the return of the footage. It wasn't me because I'm not an official Unifficial, government right. in any way. Okay, right? got so it, right. It wouldn't mm -hmm. have made sense if it came from me. Right. So I'm not aware of any other specific cases like that, or the, although there may have been some. Mm -hmm. That's the only story that I know about. Mm -hmm. um, historically, uh, Afghan film and later the National Archive, which took over the Afghan film archive, has been very unwilling, generally very unwilling to let the films leave the country. <laughs> um, yeah. mm -hmm. They did at one point allow the National Film Board of Canada to scan about 20, 20 films. Okay. Um, but those were all returned 
Um, mm -hmm. they, were, they were they were scanned as part of uh, a, a kind of deal around the production of the Forbidden Reel, which was an NFB film. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And there was supposed to be a kind of larger collaboration happening around that, which I think fell apart because of lack of funding. Mm -hmm. um, so unfortunately, those were never really like fully restored or anything like that. Um, trying to see if we can do anything with them now. Right. Like I mean, it, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's complicated. It's complicated because like uh, a country you know, wants to hold on to its heritage, its history, you know, yeah. but, um, but then um, it gets tricky when you're talking about a country that is at war, you know, and governments are unstable and, you don't know if a government's coming in that really wants to, who really wants to erase that history. Yeah. So like, um, I guess my question is like, how can like maybe those of us who, who are not from a particular country, how can we support, mm -hmm. how can we support like organizations like Af Afghan film mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, preservation? I mean, ideally it'd be cool if, you know, there could be some like, kind of cooperation or exchange not exchange but where mm -hmm. the may the main archives originals are in one place but then like the other ones uh copies of it are stored like you know with what you mentioned with the national mm -hmm. what the national film board did mm -hmm. but what can we do <laughs> to mm -hmm. help to help preserve these these heritage heritages yeah. so yeah i mean the 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 general idea that that you're kind of referring to which is which is that is actually the the way that archivists normally approach it now is to mm -hmm. sort of uh, leave material archives in place and, right. mm -hmm. um, you know, reproduce digital copies in other in other countries for safekeeping, for security, for restoration, whatever. Mm -hmm. But to always leave the material copies in in the original country, in the original community. Um, right. That is generally standard practice in archiving now. Mm -hmm. And that is what was the plan <laughs> also with the <laughs> Afghan film archives. It just yeah. didn't really get carried out. Mm -hmm. um, so now we're, we're kind of at this moment left only with really specific films that were, you know, in progress in some way in right, other right. places. Mm -hmm. You know, my, mm -hmm. my team had been working on restorations pro bono for specific films by the directors who were interviewed and what we left unfinished as mm -hmm. you know, kind of part of our, our ongoing process of what we left unfinished, I would yes. say. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Kind of our ongoing relationships and, and kind of thinking around the film was that we should also do something for each director who was in yes. the film. Mm -hmm. We should restore one of their f finished films basically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and put it into circulation. And so we, we, we have copies of those films because we were working on those restorations. Yeah. Um, That'd be awesome. Yeah. Like I, I would definitely like, I want, <laughs> I want to see some of these in their full entirety, you know, mm -hmm. as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're worth, they're definitely worth seeing there. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah and the nfb has uh i presume they skept they kept i hope they kept the the full scans of the films yes. that they scanned <laughs> right um mm -hmm. yeah and i think there may be a few other things in a few other places mm -hmm. but 
I don't, I don't know what has been or will be the fate of the files, the digital files and the material objects that, you know, were held in the National Archive at the time of the government's collapse. I don't, I just don't right. know. Right, right. Um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I just don't know. And I think mm-hmm. in terms of what people can do to, do to support, mm-hmm. you know, the, the community of people that is also the archives, you know, they need support. In what ways? Them. Yeah. So um, um, yeah. I'll, 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 I'm big about specifics. So <laughs> what are some, what are some specific things that you know, we can do? Yeah. Well, there are people who are at risk and still in Afghanistan who need sponsors for visas and help you know, paying for visas and we'll need help with resettlement later with mentorship, um, mentorship and um, educational placement or fellowship placements, things like that. There are filmmakers also that we're still trying to help um, leave and, you know, get to a new place and, you know, find support for in that new place. It's basically all the things that all Afghans at risk need right now, which is right. mm-hmm. help with travel, help with visas, help with resettlement and like thinking in the long term, like what do they do? How do they connect to community? Mm-hmm. How do they continue to develop professionally once they're in a new place, right? Um, mm-hmm. All of those questions. Yeah. Okay. Um, because, you know, one of my, one of my things I've really been, Trying to think about, you know, now that the the sort of madness of the emergency evacuation is over and we're settling into this longer, slower, harder work mm-hmm. um, right. of, of the long-term process, is really thinking about not just day two or day three, but month six, month 12, mm. you know, year two, year three, year five, you know, what, what will that look like? People. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And how do you really plan for that? And how do you really help people get to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, we we have to wrap up, but um, I always like to give our guests um, the last word. So, um, any final thoughts about things we discussed today? Um, anything you want to bring up that we didn't delve into? Um, but also, I would like you to include. Um, your final thoughts, um, if there are any um, organizations that we should know about where we can like either donate or learn how to sponsor, like mm-hmm. if people are able to do that. So if you could include that in your final thoughts, mm-hmm. so that'd be great too. Okay, great. Um, well, I would say one thing we didn't talk about that I think is really important to the film is the sound. Um, mm. Yeah, the sound design in the film, which connects to the way that we worked with this fictional material within, you know, this documentary framework. And that's really thinking about how to present these films as films and the decision to construct full scenes um, Mm -hmm. from these movies, you know, because of course, most of them, we only had raw footage. uh, Right. And the feeling that we had after a rough cut that looked completely different and didn't <laughs> totally work um, as they so often don't work documentary rough cuts. Um, 
but the feeling that we had that in order to understand why these filmmakers went to such lengths to keep making films, you had to actually see their films right? mm-hmm. um, and see the kind of the joy, right? That result. Yes. That resulted from these insane efforts um, to keep making films. Uh, and then, you know, where the sound comes into that is all of this Foley that we did uh, mm. to, to kind of fill out the, the life worlds of these clips because mostly oh. we didn't have any sound. Oh, really? To, so yeah. did, you, did you test have like audio from the, you had the audio from the actors, but they, no, it, we had nothing. These, we had nothing. You had no, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There was mm-hmm. nothing. There was, we only had audio for some of the clips from um, Agent. That's why you hear a little dialogue from mm. Agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't have any audio for any other films. So, wow. okay. Yeah. So we made all of it. Um, we made all of that fully and we made it kind of in the style of films from that region in that period. Right. So yeah, because like it, it, it seemed, no, it, I know, but it seemed to fit. Like yeah. I didn't, yeah. So I mean, that's what it was meant to do. Okay. <laughs> it's meant to kind of feel seamless. It's meant to feel yeah. fit seamlessly with the clips from Agent that did have sound. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to kind of um really just feel of that era. It's meant to feel like these clips are from are clips from movies that exist, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But that's all an illusion because they didn't exist and they never existed, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is that the the ambient sound in those clips actually comes from our present day footage. Um so these mm-hmm. kind of matching shots that we did um yeah. where we we have footage from the same locations that were used in the archival films and there's this mm-hmm. kind of like really subtle continuity between the audio in the present day shots and the audio in the mm-hmm. archival footage because it is actually the same same, the same sound. space. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. So I always I, like to just point that out because it's yes. the thing I'm proudest of in the film yeah. is the sound design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> also, seventy percent of the footsteps are mine. So okay, you know. all right. Yeah. Okay. DIY it's, Foley. It's like yeah, exactly. Me and five different pairs of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Like this is me walking. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Awesome. And then um, organizations that are out there, maybe who are like have like websites that we should mm-hmm. go to so we can, you know, help help preserve these, you know, help preserve these archives, but also help mm-hmm. um, these Afghan artists who are doing this work of preservation. Indeed. So um, you can go to artsforafghanistan.org. Uh, which is the sort of ad hoc coalition that I was humbly part of organizing. There's a whole list of resources um, at that website that links to many other great organizations that are doing this work. And um, we'll, we'll have a very specific fundraiser up on there very soon as well. Okay, great. Okay, good, good, good. So we will make a point to um, highlight that. Yes. Money. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. All right. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for being on the show today. And um, thank you to the Doc Leipzig team for allowing Rennell and I and the What's Up With Docs podcast um, team to be a part of this. And um, I just love this opportunity to talk about archives because I think archives in the documentary space are like my first love. So yeah, Mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy.